Money FM 89.3, the best of your money. Money and me on your money, only on Money FM 89.3. Hey, welcome to Money and Me. I'm Michelle Martin. The entire world seems to be focused, investing world, on the struggling banking sector. Struggling banks doesn't usually roll off my tongue easily, but it's big news this morning. UBS going to buy Credit Suisse, Suisse regulators brokering a three billion US dollar deal. And one aspect of this merger that is interesting is that some seventeen billion US dollars of Credit Suisse bonds are now worthless. Uh, and so usually in investing, there is a certain pecking order and this really upends it because it means that equity investors come ahead of bondholders. I'm going to ask my guest what she thinks about that, but we're all going to money school today in case you're wondering, is it safe to put my money in banks after what happened to Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank? Now we're hearing about Credit Suisse. Lacey Filipich is founder and director of Money School. Lacey, good morning. How are you? Hi, Michelle. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Okay, Lacey. Uh, you know, with the whole Credit Suisse-UBS merger, first let me take a step back. How are things over in the U.S.? Are people worried about leaving their money in banks at all? I think the U.S., yes, people are still nervous, and that's natural. We don't want to see a return of the GFC, the global financial crisis that happened in 2008, and it wouldn't surprise me if people all over the world have got their antennas up at the moment and thinking, ooh, What's happening? Should I be nervous? Do I need to get my money out? And of course, we know the problem with that is that it's contagious. The moment we start pulling that money out, that's when we trigger the crisis, the great irony of this moment. Yeah. And so, you know, walk us through what's happening. Man on the street in Australia, perfectly calm when it comes to Australian banks, or are there worries about what should we do with our money? Look, I think in Australia, we've got a situation that's pretty unique in that we are heavily reliant on our financial system for our retirement funds. And by that, I mean, we have in our top 10 companies on the Australian Stock Exchange, five of them are banks. That's huge, right? That's Mm. a massive part of our economy. And lots of people with their superannuation funds, which is our retirement system over here, will have shares in those banks. So the moment that there's any hiccup with the banks, there's a lot of nervousness. Now, the good thing that happens in Australia is, of course, like lots of places in the world, we have heaps of regulation now that protect us. So I think in general, most Australians would be keeping an eye on the news, but not overly worried because we know that similar to the US, similar to Singapore, similar to most uh, developed nations in the world, we have a insurance and amount. Uh, you know, we're guaranteed our bank deposits to a certain amount. And that means that we don't have to panic and pull money out of the bank because we think the bank is going to go broke. So I would say in general, in Australia, there's a kind of level of awareness curiosity, but not panic by any stretch of the imagination yet. Interesting. Okay, tell us, you know, here in Singapore, there have been debates over whether or not what we saw happen to SVB uh, could happen to one of our local banks. Um, Could this happen in Australia? Let me put that question to you. Losing a bank is always a possibility. I don't think this is a new risk. So when people are worried about this, they see Silicon Valley Bank and think, oh, is it going to happen here? That's always been a possibility. That's how the banking sector works. We use capital adequacy in Australia. In the US, they use uh, an alternative one, which is called fractional reserve banking. But basically, you don't have enough cash sitting in the bank to pay everybody at the same time. If we all turned up, if every single customer turned up to the bank and said, I'd like all my cash now, the bank couldn't hand it over. And that is how the system is designed. Now, that really worries a lot of people when they hear that. They go, oh, it's like that now. 
yes, it is. <laughs> that's how it's always been. That's how banking works. And I think that's why people go, oh, so this could always have happened? And the answer is yes, it could always have happened. The thing is the trigger. What triggers this to happen? And if you look at Silicon Valley Bank, they've had a series of dominoes just fall over. And unfortunately, each one's led to the next one's led to the next one. It's gotten bigger and bigger. And that's what's triggered Silicon Valley Bank. They are unique, though, mm. when you think about banking. And mm. I think they were they had a high proportion of depositors who were businesses and startups who were having well over the insured limit. So the insured limit in the United States is $250,000. Lots of them had millions. So the big question was, oh, gosh, is that extra money that we need to pay our employees on Monday going to be available. So that's why Silicon Valley Bank's a bit different from the average mum and dad or family person who's got an account. Not a lot of us are going to have over $250,000 in cash in the US, or I think it's 75000 Singaporean dollars where you are. It's 250000 Australian dollars where I am. Not a lot of people are going to be sitting on cash at that amount, mm. but that's why it triggered such a big concern as so many people were worried they were going to have to close their businesses as a result. Let's get your views on Silicon Valley Bank in general, I mean, do you think that um, no traditional bank would have been able to withstand that amount of bank pullouts because of the bank run? Mm, look, a bank run is a, th- a threat for any bank at all. It's about how many people it triggers. Yeah. <laughs> um, Silicon Valley Bank, not being a tier one, you know, not the, the biggest kind of bank, yeah. being a smaller one, had a very specific remit. And, you know, the name is a dead giveaway, right? Silicon Valley Bank, it's there for investment and for people to grow businesses and it inherently has a bit of risk. What's unfortunate for Silicon Valley Bank is what they did with the cash they had is that they've tied it up in bonds that had 10-year life and unfortunately when they needed to sell them, they were going to be selling at a loss. So they could have done that. They could have sold at a loss and absorbed it. Uh, it would have been really bad for the bank. It would have looked terrible. So they turned instead to their investors and said, investors, we need to raise money to cover this shortfall. And that's actually what triggered it. It was the fact that the investors went, oh my gosh, the bank hasn't got enough money. That's actually where the beginning started. They failed in their thing. capital raise. Absolutely. That's right. So unfortunately, it's, it's enough. It's, it's almost like a fear triggers. It's not really based on necessarily the numbers because they should have been okay, um, if, especially if they've been able to raise. We may never have heard of this. This might not have happened. Yeah, yeah. And this <laughs> so, is, so, this, go ahead, yeah. go ahead, Lacey, please. I was just going to say, it's, just a, it's a really interesting example of how much of it is in our psyches, how much of it is actually about yeah. our fear and our greed balance. And when we say, oh, no, that's too much for me, I can't accept the risk anymore. And that's actually what triggers these crises. Let's talk about Credit Suisse. It's big news this morning. So uh, Credit Suisse's problems really started last Wednesday. Uh, We heard about the Saudi National Bank saying it's not going to invest any more money in Credit Suisse. The Saudis don't want to cross that 10% regulatory threshold. Um, Swiss regulators brokered a 3 billion US dollar deal. Big news this morning, UBS is going to buy Credit Suisse. Um, But one unusual aspect of this merger is that Equity investors are going to be put ahead of bondholders. Someone, 17 billion, staggering 17 billion US dollars worth of Credit Suisse bonds now worthless. What do you make of this? This really surprised me. I'm very interested to see how this plays out. And I think in the investing world, we've all been taught that bonds will get you less return because they're safer because you're higher priority. If it comes to a situation of a bankruptcy or a sale, then the bondholders, because we're effectively acting like banks, we're lending money, are gonna get paid before the shareholders. That's been the theory behind it all for a very long time. So this is really unusual to have decided, actually, we're going to say that the bonds are worth zero 
so not even a fraction of whatever they were worth, that's pretty much written off. So that means everyone who had a bond doesn't get that capital back, which is really frustrating because that's generally you're hoping with a bond, it's like having a little bit more risk than money in the bank, but less risk than owning shares. So it seems kind of unfair. Everybody's <laughs> going back holder. to the books looking but at like, is it a bond part of fixed income? <laughs> Wait a minute. It's a exactly. fixed income. What happened? Oh, my gosh. Yeah, really unusual. Exactly. So I think the flow-on effect of that is going to be really interesting. So what does that then say to people? Because generally we would say, okay, well, bonds, slightly lower risk. So you get slightly less return mm-hmm. and shares are a bit higher risk. Yeah. Equities are a bit higher risk. And that's why so you, you hold get a little bit longer. more return. Mm-hmm. But now, yeah, exactly. And, but now, no, we're turning that about. Now the shareholders are going to get compensated before the bondholders, which I think is it's really risky in terms of when you think about the important role that bonds play, particularly when I think about, I think about retirement funds, right. you know, where a lot of people's money is tied up. The importance of bonds in those portfolios for balancing risk, does this change that? I'm going to be very interested to see how that pans out or whether this will just be a one-off we're not doing it again. Certainly wouldn't happen here. I hope they come out and say that in lots of nations <laughs> so that bondholders can have that reassurance. We'll be looking at pension funds and how they react to this. That's a great point, Lacey. Uh, speaking of, you know, the psyche mm. and, and the fear and the head scratching with all this happening, um, you, you talked a little earlier about an insurance scheme that protects mm-hmm. um, bank deposits over in Australia. Can you run us through how people are protected in Australia versus how we're protected in Singapore as you as you understand it? Mm, yes, that'd be a really important topic, I think, for everybody who's listening. If you have any concerns about your money in the bank, then please do this first. Go and find out what your regional rules are. So in Singapore, you've got your monetary, I think it's uh, Monetary Authority of Singapore. Singapore, MES, that that's controls. Right. Yes, yeah. So that's the one that controls the limits over there. And in Australia, we've got our um, financial claims scheme. So go and have a look at whichever one you've got, but I'll run you through briefly what those mean. Basically, the governments of the world after the global financial crisis in 2007-8 said, we don't want this to happen again. We don't want the run on the bank caused by people going, but I need to get my cash out or I won't be able to have it back because the bank collapses. So the solution that most governments came up with was, we will ensure and make sure that people can feel confident about their money up to a certain limit. So the financial claims scheme in Australia guarantees every account holder with what's called an authorised deposit-taking institution. Now, that terminology is really important. It's not just every institution because we have some organisations that operate under the same banking licence. So, you know, there's one main banking licence and then lots of subsidiaries It only applies for the banking license itself. So you can't have, you know, three different banks. If they're all under the same license, you're only guaranteed once. So that's why I'm labouring that point. (laughs) You do need to do a bit of research. But so long as you've got your money in an authorised deposit-taking institution in Australia and it's under $250,000 per account holder. So that's also really important if you're a joint account with your partner or if you're a company, that kind of thing. So keep that in mind. Then if... The worst happens. If the bank falls over, the government has said, we will ensure that you get your money back and you won't have to wait. Because I think that's the really important thing. People saying, yeah, you can have your money, but not for two years is a problem. And in Singapore, you've got a very similar system. So in Australia, it's $250,000. In Singapore, it's $75,000. But again, there's a list of those organisations that count. You can look them up on sdic.org. SG, and you'll be able to see that list and know which ones you're with. So this is a great time for anyone who's worried to take an audit. 
Go have a look at all your bank accounts. Go have a look at how much money you've got in each one. Mm. If you've got any institution where you've got over $250,000 in Australia or $75,000 in Singapore, this Mm. is your chance to be proactive, which might mean finding another bank that you can open an account with and moving some of that extra money across. It might be that you're willing to accept the risk and that you're just going to leave the money there, and that's fine. Particularly for people with mortgages, there might be an incentive to leave lots of money with one bank. But just be conscious of that risk because as a consumer, that's the best thing you can do is make sure that you've had a look at those limits, you've looked at who you're banking with and that you haven't gone over the limit. So that way, if something goes wrong, you don't have to panic. You don't have to run to the bank and get your money out. And I think that's a recipe for sleeping well at night. It is indeed. Let me just ask you, is this uh, 250000 that you insured for with all, is it an aggregate of all your accounts or just with each account? So does it make sense to sort of diversify where you put your money in, in Australia? Yeah, it's the total value of the accounts you have with that bank. So if you've got 10 accounts with that bank, it's the total of those But what about accounts. the accounts you have with other so banks? That doesn't matter. So oh. each institution is treated separately. So in Australia, we've got over 50 ADIs, right? There's a lot of them. Uh, that's an authorised deposit-taking institution. So you could have 50 lots of 250000 all covered by our bank guarantee. Yeah. So that's the important thing. It's not like you're limited to 250000 in total. It's across all of all of your accounts. Each one just matters who's got the deposit with the licence. So I, for example, have got three different banks I bank with. So theoretically, I can get up to $750,000 guaranteed across those three banks. Uh, what questions do you think we should be asking banks as, as depositors or thinking through as possible bank investors? Mm, this is such an important point. So I think we'll do the two hats separately. So first of all, as just an everyday person using your bank account, you want to first of all make sure that you qualify under your insurance scheme. So go to those websites, check that the bank that you're banking with is listed and verify that. Because of course, if someone's doing something dodgy, they might've said on their bank website, we're covered, or there might be something in the fine print. You wanna verify that with what the government says. Yes, this institution is covered. And I think the second thing then is going and having a look at the terms and conditions of your bank. So each bank will have an an explanation of how they operate under that insurance scheme, or at least they should do. (laughs) And if they don't, getting in contact with your bank and asking those questions and saying, so what would happen in the event of this claim scheme being enacted? What would happen to my money? How much would be available? And I think that's quite a few people off guard in Australia when they've gone looking at the subsidiary banks and realised that they have an account with the subsidiary and the main licence holder and so the total of those is only $250,000. So that's quite a few people I know off guard this week. But it's the best thing you can do as, as a person who's going to put money in a bank is just to reassure yourself that what you've got in there is covered and that it's registered with the the central authority. So that's what you can do as a customer. Then as an investor, the question is, are you going to buy bank shares <laughs> or are you going to buy bonds in the bank. Those are really the two things that people do as an investor. So if you're thinking about doing either of those, you've got to look at the entity itself and you've got to look at the market as a whole. So if we look at what's happened to bank shares Australia-wide, and I would hazard a guess pretty much everywhere, the shares have dropped quite a lot. So the question is, is this a good investment now? So you'd have to have a think about, and often in Australia we talk about price to earnings as being a trigger for when it's good to buy bank shares, but you might be looking more closely at their balance sheet now to try and understand where their assets are held. Because of course, if we have a similar event uh, with, a, with a bank locally, are we sure that it's going to be saved by the central government? 
you never can tell. They're making decisions on the fly some of the times. So, so long as you're with it, that $250,000 guarantee as a depositor, you're great. But if you're an investor, it might be a different story if a bank goes to collapse. So you've got to think about whether you're willing to take that risk on. Timing in the market is important at the moment as well because there's questions about whether we're going to go into a recession or not. So that question about whether you want to tie up some of your equity in bonds or shares in a bank would be another question about individuals thinking about where they're at at their stage of life and what their risk is and whether they're willing to wait what might be a few years to get their money back out if something does go wrong. When you're looking as an investor at a bank's um, balance sheet, what exactly are you looking out for? What are some of the components that you look out for? Well, this is a really interesting point. I think I've become perhaps a little bit lazier with my looking at banks since we had so much more regulation come in. Mm. And the reason for that is the regulation is so much more stringent. So I have, uh, when I'm looking at banks, I'm generally looking at the big banks. So I consider them to be pretty stable, particularly in Australia, we talk about our big four. So we have mm. four institutions. You could say it's five now because our fifth one that's in the uh, in that top 10 in the ASX. Um you, you can spend a lot of time going through their balance sheet to understand where they're allocating their capital and whether how they've treated capital adequacy ratios in Australia. Oh. So how much money have we lent out versus how much money have we kept and what was that cash in? What kind of assets have they bought? So understanding whether we've got something similar to Silicon Valley Bank, I don't think that's going to be as big a risk with bigger banks because they have a much broader base, much more governance oversight much more stringent regulation. So, look, you can spend a lot of time to understand that if you want to, mm-hmm. um, and certainly those reports are available. You can look at annual reports to assess those. When you- I think you've really at this point – sorry? No, please go ahead, Lucy. <laughs> I was going to say at this point I think you've got to um, make that decision about uh, where this would fit in your portfolio versus the risk in the next sort of three to five years. I think yeah. that sort of is an external view more so than an internal view of the bank. So that's a more philosophical discussion I think people have to have at the moment. Interesting. Yeah, we, we talked to a friend in Australia recently on this show and he said the psyche in Australia is when something like this happens, you get a big truck and you back up to the bank and you pile in as many bank shares as you can. <laughs> they are on sale at the moment is uh, is what I would say. I think there's a, there's an opportunity. What do they say? Be, uh, be bold when others are fearful. <laughs> so the, the point is that there's potential risk. Could this go further? Could this spread further? That's Could shares drop thing. further? We'll never know. Oh, yeah, no. we. I don't have a crystal ball that works. You're never going to know. <laughs> uh, but bank shares are considered to be um, inherently reliable in Australia. Mm. I wouldn't say they're guaranteed, but they're considered to be fairly reliable because, in general, the dividends will will provide more than the interest would for an equivalent amount invested uh, okay. as a, as cash. You know. So I'm going to end yeah. a little bit where we started, and that was with SVB. Since you since the bank rescue, do you think, Lacey, that that the intervention has strengthened confidence in the US banking system as a whole? I think it has. There's been some commentary about the FDIC, which is the organisation in the US that's responsible for the insurance scheme, not being prompt enough. And I would challenge that. I think they came out within 48 hours with a pretty robust solution. And the solution was to make sure that everybody who had cash in the bank was made whole. And what I like about that solution is it's not saying we're going to protect shareholders, we're not going to protect the management, we're not going to protect these people. We're just going to make sure everybody who had a deposit, in some cases it's going to be millions of dollars because they're organisations and startups, we're going to make sure they're whole. So I think that's pretty swift myself. I think that's um, a very sensible move to reassure everybody. I think that has 
reassured people that they will intervene beyond that limit of $250,000 because I think that was the unique thing here. So many people were over that limit that they were wondering what they were going to do. And I know it was a very stressful weekend for startups particularly and organisations who had money in that bank, but I really do feel like 48 hours is pretty swift for that response. And it has reassured people that there is still this sense that we don't want another GFC. We will do whatever we can to avoid it. And it looks like banks around the world feel that way. So I think, if anything, I feel a little bit less worried than I had previously. And and having seen that some of those reforms have been rolled back by the US during Trump's administration, this has just given me confidence that they still do take it seriously, that they will intervene and that it is considered to be very important to keep it stable. I'm so glad we spoke with you this morning. I feel so much calmer. Thanks for taking us to Money School, Lacey. Lacey Filipich is founder and director of Money School. How can we how can we enroll in Money School? Help us understand the listeners, how they can read more, find out more about what you do. Oh, please come to my website, moneyschool.org.au and feel free to check out my book, also called Money School. And I'd love to see you there. Feel free to email any questions you've got to me. Can't wait to chat with you again soon, Lacey. Thank you so much and have a great day ahead. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.